Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a story of absolutely epic proportions. It's about brother turning on brother, about billionaires battling for supremacy, about the country's biggest hero being humiliated in front of his nation by a man who he looked to as a father. There's blood and betrayal and vengeance. This is a story about professional wrestling. what you need to know to kick things off. In 1997, the world of wrestling was in the middle of a war. The WWF, which for years had dominated the pro wrestling landscape, was losing viewers to the insurgent WCW. And even worse, they were losing some of their biggest stars. So WWF is kind of being seen as a little bit of a sinking ship. And that's when, of course, the offer comes to Bret Hart. My name is Omar Moalem. I'm a journalist and writer in Edmonton, and uh, I've written about the Hart family and wrestling in general over the years. Brett the Hitman Hart was back then the WWF's biggest star. The Calgary-born scion of a wrestling dynasty, Brett had for years been what's known in the wrestling business as a babyface. He's a hero, a straightforward good guy who gets in the ring for the right reasons. But Vince McMahon, the head of the WWF, he wanted to change that. So he got Brett to do a heel turn and to become a bad guy. And he did it by insulting the American fans. Nobody glorifies criminal conduct like the Americans do. In all the countries that I go to around the world, they still respect what's right and what's wrong. You American wrestling fans coast to coast, you don't respect me. Well, the fact is, I don't respect you. So from here on in, the American wrestling fans, coast to coast, can kiss my ass. But of course, insulting Americans is the quickest way to become even more of a hero in Canada. A few weeks ago, I was told, America, love it or leave it. Well, I've traveled all around the world. I've been all over the United States of America. And the one thing that I've in particular looked forward to is loving, leaving it. And what's even better than insulting Americans? Playing to every Canadian cliche in the book. Canada is a country where we still take care of the sick and the old, where we still have health care. We got gun control. We don't shoot each other and kill each other on every street corner. Yeah. Canada isn't riddled with racial prejudice and hatred. Across Canada, we all care for each other. And I am proud to be Canadian, and I am proud to be your hero. Despite his enthusiastic delivery, Brett doesn't actually want to be the bad guy hated by American fans. But he still feels loyalty to Vince McMahon. And so when the rival WCW comes knocking, he's torn. Here's Brett from the time in the documentary Wrestling with Shadows. 
I mean, you have to show some common sense, you know, and first of all, you have to do what's right for your family. But I mean, how much money do you need sometimes? I found myself torn between trying to do the right thing for my family and at the same time show my loyalties. You know, I think my relationship with, with Vince McMahon was always sort of like a father. And I sort of saw myself, if I left, it would have been a little bit like leaving my dad, especially when the chips are down. Uh, you know, the WCW is breathing down his neck. They've overtaken him in the ratings. It's easy to jump and switch sides then and say, well, thanks for everything. Brett decides to leave. He's going to take the money and jump ship, but there's only one problem. He's the reigning WWF champion. He can't just leave while he's still holding that belt. So it's decided that he's going to give the belt up to his rival, Shawn Michaels. Shawn is everything that Brett isn't. He's over the top and overtly sexual, and the two men really do hate each other. I want that gutless little poser, Shawn Michaels, to get his ass out here. Once again, I've beaten you, I've beaten your brother, I've beaten both your brother-in-laws, and I'll beat up the whole family if you get in my face one more time. They couldn't have been better opponents. Like, even their hair color's different. Like, everything about it, they're so diametrically opposed to each other. And here they are, locked in a feud with each other, and eventually kind of pitted against each other by the company. I'm Damien Abraham. I sing in the band Fucked Up. I host a podcast called Turn It a Punk, and I love pro wrestling. The plan is that Brett will have his last fight in Montreal in his home country. And the match will end in a schmoz where a bunch of wrestlers rush the ring and there's no definitive winner. And then Brett, he'll give up the belt the next day. The day of the match arrives and Brett Hart and Shawn Michaels go at it. It's going according to plan. It's a little awkward to watch back. You can tell that these guys are not maybe working at their best with each other at this point. Sean gets Brett into a sharpshooter, which is Brett's finishing move. And then all of a sudden, it's over. There's no schmoz. No one rushes the ring. It's a straight-up win for Shawn Michaels. And then all of a sudden, the bell rings, and it's said that, oh, Brett tapped. And they give the belt to Sean. And you just look at Brett, and Brett's like, what's going on? Damien and Omar were both watching from home. I didn't even get all the pay-per-views, but I got this pay-per-view. It was so big. And watching it as a fan, you're like, what the hell just happened? I mean, I remember seeing that and just knowing that something was off. Because I've watched enough wrestling at this point to know that, you know, after a big match like that, there's usually about three minutes of showboating and uh and more drama to ensue but that doesn't happen sean just books it and brett is left there looking completely stunned everyone knows wrestling is scripted but this this was real brett hart the canadian hero had just been screwed and it would go down as one of the most infamous events in wrestling history and it was only one moment in the fascinating and harrowing saga of the Hart Dynasty. Wrestling operates on the level of the mythological. It's outsized, larger than life, and often ridiculous. But it's also one of the most popular forms of entertainment around. And so much of wrestling history has pivoted around one Canadian dynasty. The story of the Hearts is both triumphant and tragic. And for 75 years, they've helped shape one of the most popular forms of entertainment in the world. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help, and one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself 
with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. And to a certain extent, this is patriotism gone awry here tonight live in Calgary, Alberta. Because I don't care what the Hart Foundation does, they cheer them. In the 1990s, the Hearts, especially Brett and his brother Owen, were probably the most famous Canadians in the world, except for maybe Celine Dion and Jim Carrey. I would argue that the Hart family are the most recognized, maybe the Fords now because of recent years, but the most recognized Canadian dynasty internationally. Like you go to China, you know, you talk to someone that likes just general sports, there's a better chance they know Brett the Hitman Hart would recognize the picture of Brett the Hitman Hart than they would Wayne Gretzky. And they earn that fame in the very strange world of professional wrestling. Wrestling is far more than just what happens in the ring. It's about the outsized mythological characters and the epic stories where someone can be booed as a villain one day and then cheered as a hero the next. And it really is like the, the opera of the people. You know, like people don't go to opera. Like I've been to one opera in my like rock operas don't count. Right. But like I've been to one real opera in my life. People don't go to opera. People go to wrestling. You know, like the masses go to wrestling. So as this is, you know, such a great barometer reflection of society, like I think paying attention to it is fascinating. Like you find out so much about the world we're in. And the most important thing to know about wrestling is that, sure, it's scripted, but it's not fake. The skill involved is enormous. The stunts they perform are feats of athleticism and the injuries they suffer are very real. You know, saying fake, like if you say fake to a wrestler, they will slap you. And holding it all up is the concept of kayfabe. Kayfabe is what wrestling hinges on, and that's the idea that it is a work. Like what you're seeing is not on the up and up. You're seeing two or more people engaged in, in physical combat, which on some level, because it's not always completely a work, but at some level is predetermined. Omar Mualam still remembers what it was like to see wrestling as a child. I remember when I was maybe five or six years old when Stampede Wrestling came through town. And town for me was, you know, this little community in northern Alberta called High Prairie, population less than 3,000. And it was, you know, quite literally like the circus coming to town because they would, they would actually set up in the same like sports palace or ice rink that the circus would set up in. And I remember a few years after that, Probably in the early 90s, my dad really spoiled us, and he bought us tickets to WWF in Edmonton. And he took us there, and we, we had great tickets, and you know Hulk Hogan was there, and Macho Man Randy Savage was there, and Ultimate Warrior. I was a big Ultimate Warrior fan for some reason. And we both left with Bret the Hitman Hart glasses. They were these kind of flimsy, fake sunglasses that kind of looked like the real ones he had, except like when you actually touched them, they were basically made of like tinfoil. And to Canadians, and especially Albertans, the hearts were larger than life figures. It was a huge point of pride in Alberta, right? Because it was rare enough as it is as a Canadian to hear Canada or a Canadian city, let alone Alberta city, name dropped internationally. But you always felt this, this pride wash over you every time Bret Hart was announced and they said from Calgary, Alberta, every single time. It just like it, it hit you, it made you feel like like you had a, a bigger place in the world than you actually had. In 1997, in the Calgary Saddle Dome, it's clear just how much the Hart family is adored. The Hart Foundation, which is the nickname for the stable of wrestlers that includes the Hart siblings and their allies, has just won a massive 10-man tag team match in their hometown. 
and the crowd is just losing it. Hart family members are jumping into the ring to celebrate. There's a celebration for the entire Hart family and the Hart Foundation. Ladies and gentlemen, all of Canada is proud of the first family of the World Wrestling Federation indeed. For the Hearts, the journey to being proclaimed Canada's first family in front of thousands of adoring fans started nearly a century ago in Saskatchewan. Stu Hart was born in Saskatoon in 1915, and he had it rough from the beginning. Stu Hart grew up a farmer's boy. Like, he grew up on a farm, and he grew up very, very poor. And at one point, his dad actually went to jail for falling behind on his taxes. He had to be tough because, A, back in those days, if you were left-handed, you were basically abused by adults. And he was left-handed, and he was treated very poorly and forced to use his right hand, which, um, you know, right away he was he was treated like like an outsider, like there was something wrong with him. You know, I think from a very early age, had to put on this very macho persona. He had to really, really tough it out. Stu becomes a professional tough guy. He's a weightlifter, a bodybuilder, a championship collegiate wrestler. He even becomes a football player and joins the Edmonton Eskimos. But a cycling accident destroys his athletic career. He'd broken multiple bones. He was hospitalized in Edmonton for months. And that's when his friend Al Oming convinces him to join the Navy. They both love bodybuilding and weightlifting. And they become like the beefcakes in residence at the Navy base in Nova Scotia. If you could just imagine them weightlifting with artillery equipment and sometimes even showing off by bench pressing each other. They start to organize wrestling events, and that's how Stu Hart first became a wrestling promoter. But even then, he was still getting in the ring himself. That's the thing about Stu Hart. Like, we're talking about a professional wrestler, but we're also talking about someone who probably the present landscape would be a UFC champion. Like, his level of physicality and kind of what he brought to wrestling as far as these submission holds, that's something that is carried on to this day. He's so talented, and he's reviled by other wrestlers for how seriously he takes himself. And even though he's a good guy, a lot of the fans don't like him because their girlfriends and their wives have the hots for him. Stu and Al end up moving back to Alberta and starting up a wrestling promotion that will turn into Stampede Wrestling. They put on live events, and eventually these were broadcast around the world. He would run shows all over the place, and these shows would be full with with rabid fans that would be just living and dying by the action in the ring. Stampede Wrestling is a phenomenon. Like, it's quite possibly the most successful Canadian TV program in history. I mean, it runs for decades in more than 50 countries. Stu would train many of the wrestlers himself in his basement, which soon became infamously known as the Heart Dungeon. He'd put his victims into vicious submission holds until they couldn't take it anymore. He was a master of these types of holds, and he would apply them with, some would say, great delight. He loved pain and cats, which is another thing that comes up time and time again when you hear about the house, is wrestlers that would see the litter box on the counter, see him flip the pancakes with the spatula, and then flip the cat out of the litter box with the same (laughs) spatula. In 1984, Stu Hart, who's almost 70 at this point, sells Stampede Wrestling to Vince McMahon Jr., a wrestling promoter from New York who was buying up and consolidating local promotions. He's a capitalist of the highest order, and he didn't want just the piece. He wanted the whole pie. And I think he would be very proud to admit that, too. So he used cable TV to his advantage, and he bought into markets where there already were wrestling territories and really produced stars. And he went around and raided territories for stars. And those stars included some of Stu's own children. He's a doting husband, and he wants a family and a big family, and he has one. He has 12 kids. 
eight boys. All of them become wrestlers, four girls. Every single one of them at one point marries a wrestler. But from the start, there was one who stood out from the rest. From Calgary, Alberta, weighing 230 pounds, Brett Hart. Brett's very much his father's son. And I know that's a strange thing to say because his father had eight sons. Well, Brett the Hammond Hart is an unbelievably gifted talent, athlete, you know, physical specimen who was trained by his father and just kind of raised. And he's, he's a big physical person. He's not big by wrestling standards and definitely not huge by and big by the WWE wrestling standards of the mid-80s, which is when he kind of showed up there. But he was just so talented and so unbelievable in the ring that he could make even the big oafish giant look good when he was wrestling him. But Bret Hart, he didn't quite fit into the wrestling world of the 1980s. This was a time when outsized characters like Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant roamed the landscape. Bret was confined to being a mid-card performer. Remember at this time, wrestling was all about the caricatures. You know, you were a wrestler slash a voodoo shaman. You know, you were a, a wrestler slash policeman. You were a wrestler slash, uh, I don't know, garbage man, maybe. <laughs> if you didn't have a sort of vaudevillian type character, you wouldn't really get to perform in the main events. Hulk Hogan at that time was like, Rockstar meets G.I. Joe, I think was sort of the inspiration. And Bret, Bret Hart was just Bret Hart. I mean, even the way that he talked about himself was very different because he would talk about his real life. He would talk about growing up in wrestling. He would, he would talk about growing up in Calgary. He would talk about coming from a wrestling family. But it wouldn't be long for Bret to finally get his big break. What happens is in the early 90s, there's a steroid scandal that rocks the WWF. I mean, almost brings it down. And Hulk Hogan is at the center of that. And, you know, Ultimate Warrior and all the, all the, the A-list stars are embroiled in it. And Vince McMahon needs to rebrand. He needs a new good guy. One that shows what wrestling really stands for. So he sets his sights on... Bret Hart brings in Owen Hart, builds up the Hart Foundation, and, you know, Bret goes from a standard babyface to the biggest star in the industry in a matter of a few years. Even as popular wrestlers continued to leave the WWF for the rival WCW, Bret's star continued to rise. The excellence of execution became his tagline, but that's really what he was. And so kind of through raw talent, he proved himself to be so valuable that when all the other stars kind of left the company, he, he stepped up. Bret was emblematic of an old school kind of wrestling. His technique was unparalleled and harkened back to the shooter style of wrestling that he learned in the Hart Dungeon. Shooter style is, you know, you don't really see it anymore, but it's this kind of European-South Asian wrestling hybrid. It's one part grappling and one part hand-to-hand -hand combat. And it was famous for its submission holds. You could see all of that influence come through in his finishing move. Finishing moves is the move that you do that no one else can answer. You know, and that's the move that when you apply, the fans know it's over. It's also the move when the person gets out of it, the fans know, oh my gosh, this is a match that means something. And so Brett's finishing move is one of the all-time great finishing moves. And a move that really, really does not feel good when applied, as most people can attest to that have had it applied to them by one of their friends when they were growing up. And that's the sharpshooter. And it's a submission move. Like, you know, you, you basically lock the person's legs and apply pressure in such a way that, my God, they could probably snap your leg if they wanted to. And it's also so amazing watching put it on because you're basically watching someone make themselves and another human being into a human pretzel. So, you know, like they're, they're folding their legs and there's like, it's like a human origami at a certain point. He's going to the legs. Red Hart steps through. He's going to try the sharpshooter. He's got him in the middle of the ring. He sure does. 
Let's see Flair reverse this one. It's over! Brett was joined by members of his own family who formed the core of the Hart Foundation. Now, that's not a charity. The Hart Foundation was the name for the crew of wrestlers that surrounded Brett. There were his brothers-in-law, Jim the Anvil Neidhart and the British Bulldog, and then there was Owen Hart, the youngest member of the Hart brood. In the 90s, one of the most prominent plot lines in the WWF was a rivalry between Brett and Owen, with Owen playing the overlooked younger sibling out for revenge. From all the accounts you hear from people that did know him, was one of the funniest, most charming, most down-to-earth human beings on Earth. But he he could play a horrible human being in the ring and just was just so funny and just had such a great sense of timing that he became a star. When I was a little boy and Brett was bigger than me and he was older than me and he used to pick on me and tease me and make fun of me and bully me. Well, there was a time when you used to beat me, Brett, but then I got bigger and I got bigger and I got better and I got older and I learned to fight back for myself. Here's Brett talking about having to keep up the charade in a documentary about Owen's life. We never talked to each other. Same flights, same plane, same. He'd sit in one spot and I'd sit in another. One time we got detained at Calgary Customs. Owen said something to me and I kind of leaned back and I said something back to Owen, like, yeah, right, or something like that. And, and all of a sudden this woman's customs officer comes barging out of the little office and she goes, I caught you. I knew that you guys talked. I knew you were friends. Eventually, the two siblings reconciled in the ring and were teamed up. But soon enough, real-life drama would intervene. Vince McMahon, the head of the WWF, was losing viewers to Ted Turner's WCW. But Vince thought he had a solution. He felt that America was done with the straightforward heroes and villains that wrestling had promoted for so long. They wanted something different. We in the WWF think that you, the audience, are, quite frankly, tired of having your intelligence insulted. We also think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. Surely the era of the superhero urged you to say your prayers and take your vitamins is definitely passe. He started to turn wrestling into something more provocative. But Brett didn't like the new direction. It's gotten a lot more raunchier, a lot more sexual. The show's very, very sexual, and I, and I think in a bad way. I don't think you watch wrestling for sex. I don't think, um, it's, I don't think it's become something presentable to your children. Like, like my kids won't watch the show anymore, none of them, not even the teenagers. And it's, it's just become something I don't really want to associate myself with. The clean, athletic strain of wrestling that Brett embodied was making way for something flashier. But he was still the biggest star in the WWF and a huge draw. Brett wanted a new contract from the WWE, didn't feel that he was offered the money he deserved, told them he was going to go to Turner. Depending on who you believe, Vince McMahon was given time to counteroffer. He wasn't given time to counteroffer, depending on who you believe. There's a lot of different versions of these stories. But he was decided that he was going to go to WCW, and he still had the heavyweight championship. And that's, that's the key. You know, Vince McMahon did not want him leaving with that belt. He wanted him to lose it in Montreal. Like, that was the idea. He was like, he was, he was going to lose it to Shawn Michaels. And he said, I just don't want to do it in Montreal. The next star up from him is Shawn Michaels. And Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart in real life and in wrestling life, have a massive rivalry. So this is how much they hated each other. During a live broadcasted monologue, Shawn Michaels insinuated that Bret Hart was cheating on his wife with Sonny, this, uh, this woman wrestler. Even though lately you've had some sunny days, my friend, you still can't get the job done. And so that's how ugly the rivalry was between them. So, you know, when they got in the ring together, they really wanted to beat the shit out of each other. And the idea that Brett would have to hand over the title to Shawn Michaels was the highest of insults. The animosity was very real. That's the one thing that I don't think anyone really questions. Like, nah, they were buddies behind the scenes. But they were great friends at one point, you know. Here's Brett again in Wrestling with Shadows, talking about just how humiliating it would be to lose to Shawn Michaels in a Canadian arena. I can't. I can't do it. I described it to Vince. I just assume blow my brains out would be the same. From a character standpoint, that's what I would be doing. Brett the Hitman Hart would blow his brains out. So they come up with this plan 
to basically, instead of losing to Shawn Michaels, the match that they had planned for each other in Montreal, it will end in a draw. A schmoz is what they call it when a bunch of wrestlers sort of like ambush the ring and the ref is so disoriented, he doesn't know what to do and he just has to call it off. And then the next day, Brett was going to just sort of forfeit the title. Brett sent in his resignation and signed with the WCW. And finally ended my career, 14 years with the WWF. I can't help but feel really um, heartbroken and disappointed that, um, that I left this company. What Brett didn't know is that Vince, Shawn Michaels, and almost certainly the referee had a different idea of how the match would end. In Montreal, in Brett's, you know, home country where he is, a bona fide hero. They decided to kind of go behind Brett's back. They told him, okay, fine, you know, you can have your your victory in Montreal, and then we'll take the belt off you the next night. But they went behind his back, and they came up with a different plan. And that plan was they got Earl Hebner involved, the referee, and got Shawn Michaels in on it as well. And it was decided that Shawn was going to win the belt. On November 9th, 1997, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels got in the ring in front of 20,000 fans in Montreal. Shawn puts Bret in his own finishing move. Look at this! This, like, tribute to his family, to his father. Shawn puts Bret in the, in the sharpshooter. Are you going to beat Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is! And almost immediately, the ref calls for the bell to ring. And Shawn Michaels wins the title, and he just books it out of the ring. Shawn gets out of the ring immediately. Earl Hebner, everyone's just getting out of there. Like, everyone's like, let's get the hell out of here. You can clearly see the shock on Bret Hart's face. He was promised that he wouldn't end his WWF career by losing in front of a Canadian audience. But Vince McMahon had lied to him. That's when he sees Vince McMahon... Uh, ringside, and he spits right in his face. Brett starts trashing camera equipment around the ring. And Brett, knowing that the TVs are still on him, he starts to spell the letters WCW in the air. He's just walking around spelling WCW and basically saying, fuck you. You know, you fucked me, I'm gonna fuck you. And it was war. Afterwards, he heads backstage and asks Shawn Michaels if he knew what was going to happen. Shawn lies and says that he didn't. Shawn, you weren't in on that? <sighs> fucking idea. I got no place to go my fucking witness. My hands are clean of this one, I swear to God. He's yelling me out there. I gave him a belt when I came back here. I will not have any part of it. Vince McMahon comes to see Brett in the locker room. And Brett Hart? He punches his billionaire boss right in the face. Here's Vince McMahon being interviewed a week after the Montreal match. I was disappointed in Brett when he hit me. Very disappointed. I sustained a concussion as a result of it with the vision problems to this day. I'll get over it. And I didn't think it was the right thing to do. I have no sympathy for Brett whatsoever. None. Brett made a very, very selfish decision. Brett's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life. Brett screwed Brett. I have no sympathy whatsoever for Brett. The event would come to be known as the Montreal Screwjob, and in some ways it marked wrestling's postmodern turn. It was hard to tell what was fact and what was fiction, and it's still one of the most debated events in wrestling history. I think it's important because here we are, all these years later, and this is still the one time that the curtain's really, really been pulled back. Wrestlers have always been at the mercy of their promoters. And Bret Hart, even though he had risen to a level of stardom that few wrestlers ever achieve, felt that he was being treated as disposable, just like so many other wrestlers before him. All these wrestlers that have broke their backs making this living for years end up with nothing when it's over. And then they sort of take you out back and they put a slug in the back of your head and dump you out. And That's the life of a professional wrestler. And in my case, um, the, the demands that I made and the, the, the things that I won over from a contract standpoint were all demands that uh, 
put the power back into the wrestler's hands somewhat. Maybe that's what they want to do. Maybe I was becoming too powerful, and now it's time for Vince McMahon, the promoter, to tear this guy down. Maybe it's just something that he just wanted to prove to himself that he could still do it. I, I'll never know, but I know that he was wrong. When his brother Brett left for the WCW after the Montreal Screwjob, Owen Hart stuck around in the WWF. And Owen stayed. You know, like no one is ever going to know why his motivations. I'm sure him and Brett talked about it. Like he was close with his brother and it was decided that he was going to stay. And he stayed. And there was a moment where they were going to give him a big push and make him a star. But it didn't really happen. They turned him into the Blue Blazer. He's still, once again, an unbelievably incredible talent. And uh, it was kind of like a superhero gimmick where everyone knew it was all the fans, like myself, we all knew it was Owen. That wasn't. But like the whole thing was like he didn't know that we knew. Owen Hart had never even really wanted to be a wrestler. He had dreamed of becoming a gym teacher. It sounded kind of neat to come home and say, Dad, I got a scholarship for wrestling. And I don't know why. I, I should have just said, I don't want this. It took precedent over my, uh, the whole purpose why I was going to university in the first place, you know, to get a degree. And, and, and it's like I'm back in this wrestling. It's like the, the curse of wrestling. He's not the golden child in terms of talent, though he is remarkably talented, but he's the golden child in terms of personality. You know, there was a lot of sibling rivalry in in the Hart family, naturally, but Owen was kind of the peacemaker. He was the bridge that brought everyone together. On May 23rd, 1999, Owen Hart was set to perform as the Blue Blazer at a pay-per-view event in Kansas City, Missouri. The Blue Blazer was supposed to be a bit of a bumbling superhero, so Owen was set to enter the ring from high above the rafters, get tangled up in the wire supporting him, and then fall to the ground. Tragically, it didn't go as planned. The story that you hear from what happened up top in that rafters before Owen jumped down um, is, is from only one real perspective where a signal was given, misheard by Owen, and Owen jumped before everything was attached properly and, and free-falled and died in the ring. Here at, uh, in Kansas City, uh, tragedy befell the World Wrestling Federation and all of us. Owen Hart was uh, set to make an entrance from the ceiling, and uh, he fell from the ceiling. And I have the unfortunate responsibility to let everyone know that Owen Hart has died. Owen Hart has tragically died from that accident here tonight. Here's Owen's wife, Martha Hart, talking to a documentary crew about getting the call. The phone rang. I was sitting in my front chair and I was looking at my house that I was just packing up and it was this doctor from the hospital, and I just felt this doom sweep over me, and he said, Mrs. Hart, there's been an accident. Owen fell and hit his head on the turnbuckle, and I, he was going through, like, all this stuff, and it was like, and I said, just get to the end of it. I said, what, what's the end result? Like, don't give me the whole buffer thing. Like, what happened? And, uh, he said, you know, normally we'd fly you down here to tell you this kind of news, but, you know, your husband has died. You know, there's been a lot of horrible tragedies in wrestling, but this has got to be one of the ones that just stands out the most because a lot of wrestlers pass away early. Like, that is a fact. There's a, it's a, a lifestyle that takes an unbelievable toll on your body, and you're trading fame for your, your longevity in life. But, like very few times do you witness that firsthand in the ring and as a direct way. And I can't, thankfully, I can't think of other times in WWF. It's happened in other promotions, but, you know, this is one of the few times that it happened on this scale. At his funeral, Martha Hart swore to get justice for her husband. I loved him, I loved him, I loved him. And I miss him. Because he was everything to me. He was my whole life. I'm a very forgiving person, and I'm not bitter or angry, but there will be a day of reckoning, and this is my final promise to Owen, and I won't let him down. Martha Hart sued the WWF and got an $18 million settlement. And from then, 
she was done with wrestling. She very much decided that after this, that she wanted nothing, her kids to have nothing to do with pro wrestling. To this day, Owen Hart, his family does not want him have anything to do with wrestling. His legacy has been kind of removed from pro wrestling in a way. Bret Hart was devastated by his youngest brother's death. Here he is addressing the crowd at a WCW event. And I thought maybe I'd be ready to talk about things when I got here. But the truth is, is that I'm really having a hard time deciding on what I want to do with, with my career and probably my life. I've lived for wrestling. And my family has lived for wrestling. Now we've died for wrestling. The next few years would continue to be devastating for the hearts. So a lot of people will say that the moment it all went downhill for the Hart family was Owen's death. But actually, I would say that it started one year before that with the very tragic death of Stu's young grandson, Matthew, in 1996, who, like all the other grandkids, had been groomed to wrestle. And he was 13 years old when he got flesh-eating disease, and he died very, very quickly. Two years after Matthew's death came the Montreal Screwjob, and then two years after that, Owen Hart died in the ring. As for Brett, things weren't going well for him in the WCW. I don't think he really knew what to do there because, again, WCW was this, it was style over substance. And he was always substance over style. And the same year his brother died, Brett gets kicked in the head. And it is a retirement-inducing concussion. It's so bad that this man who's put his body through decades of hard physical labor, multiple injuries, is just out. He can't get back in the ring. And then in the next five years, you have Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog's death. You have scandals with Brett's brother, Smitty Hart, who had to be forced out of the Hart house when it was put up for sale. And then after Owen's death, the glue sort of comes undone. And without him, all the sibling rivalry, all the bad blood that was always kind of there between the family members and the siblings, it just starts getting aired out with some frequency in these multiple biographies that are just published one after another over the course of like a decade. And Brett's health struggles only got worse. What Brett calls the fight of his life was in 2002. He was just out riding his bike along the Bow River in Calgary when he just, he crashed and he suddenly suffered a stroke. And it left him in a wheelchair for three months. And for a while, he never knew if he would walk again, let alone wrestle. And he was able to, with time, rehabilitate himself from that. But, you know, he's never quite been the same since. You know, he's still got a little bit of a limp and his body just doesn't work the same way that it used to. Compounded with that, you have the injuries in his wrist, the injuries from his concussions, and then he developed prostate cancer. But the hearts aren't finished with wrestling. Even Brett the Hitman Hart, a guy who, you know, had this horrible thing happen to him, who's had all this baggage with his company, even he comes back and did a WrestleMania appearance and was brought in the Hall of Fame, you know, because no one walks away forever. And a new generation of hearts has entered the ring. There's David Hart Smith, Tyson Kidd, and Natalia Neidhart. Natalia was trained to be an unbelievable wrestler, brought up in the same heart tradition, you know, of learning all this style of wrestling. And she got in there, and to this day, she's in that company, and she's still amazing in the ring. And then there's Teddy Hart. For a while, Teddy was seen as the future of the Hart family. Teddy, I think, is symbolic of the tragedy that has become the Hart family. He showed 
unbelievable promise at a very early age. At 18, he was the youngest wrestler signed to the WWF. And evidently, he was probably the youngest wrestler ever fired from the WWF because he was fired a few weeks before he was scheduled to debut. He was just um, a loose cannon from an early age. And he had no sense of professionalism. And he screwed up his first shot. And then they gave him a second shot. And he, he screwed that up. And he screwed up multiple chances in other wrestling promotions. And I've actually lost count of how many comebacks he has staged since the 90s. But he's so unbelievably talented. Maybe some would say, and I wouldn't dispute this, but he might be the most talented in-ring performer of the entire family. But he has none of the discipline or professionalism of his family members. Zero. He's gone down a very dark path. You know, over the years, he's admitted to dealing drugs, working in sex work as like a driver. He's been accused of pimping women out. He beat sexual assault charges. Omar wrote a profile of Teddy Hart for Rolling Stone back in 2016. And partially featured in it was a woman named Samantha Fiddler, who Omar described in the piece as Teddy's wrestling student and girlfriend. Samantha is a Cree woman from Edmonton who would follow Teddy to Florida to pursue her wrestling dreams. But shortly after the Rolling Stone article was out, Samantha Fiddler disappeared. A few months after it was published, her friend got in touch with me because she had searched for Samantha's name, trying to find any something, anything, and she'd come across my article, and that was like the only trace of her. Samantha disappeared on November 19, 2016. She's the mother of three children. And even though her friends and family were desperately searching for her, the police in Florida only recently took up the case. Some wrestling blogs decided to cover her disappearance because it was a very, very quiet scandal in the wrestling world. The last two wrestlers that she was associated with are Teddy and a wrestling trainer who has been convicted of sexual assault. The other wrestling trainer is Chasen Rance. Neither Teddy Hart nor Chasen Rance are suspects in this case, and both strongly deny any involvement in her disappearance. But Teddy has said a number of contradictory and demeaning things about Samantha that has become the source of significant controversy in the wrestling world. Here's a clip from an interview he did with Nightwave Radio about Samantha's disappearance. It's truly bizarre. According to me, that's basically fucking Samantha's in a lot of shit with God. Do you believe in God? So I helped her out, but I couldn't help her out if she's going to get fucked up in Florida. There's nothing I could do, dude. I'm not a fucking babysitter. She's a grown fucking woman. She knew how to get her fucking ass down here. She knew how to make phone calls up until she wanted to get fucked up and left or stop calling her family and disappeared. I pray to God nothing happened to her or happens to her, but I can't fucking, if I'm betting money on the situation, you know, what do you think happened to her? As of today, we still don't know what happened to Samantha Fiddler. In the 1990s, the Hearts were the biggest wrestling dynasty around. But of the five members of the Hart Foundation, four of them today are dead. The only one left is Bret Hart. Wrestlers often live short and tragic lives. Every single show, someone gets an injury. You know, it might be like just a minor thing. They might just miss a, a day of work the next day. But there were people that lost their careers. Wrestling isn't as popular as it once was. And Owen Hart's death in particular can be seen as a turning point. Owen Hart was definitely a moment that some fans could not get over, and for, for a lot of understandable reasons. But wrestling's been around for a century, and the WWE is undoubtedly one of the world's biggest spectacles and still adored by millions. Everywhere you go in the world, wrestling is the sport of the people. You know, wrestling, you know, for for better or for worse in some cases, you know. And, and as it is the sport of the people, it matters because it reflects people. For Damien and for many other fans, it doesn't bother them that wrestling is scripted. That's the point. At least when it comes to wrestling, you know that going in. 
It's the only thing that operates in, honestly, in two worlds. Like everything. Like, like we're, we live in a world where baseball players are stealing other players' signals, where football players are deflating footballs. So everything's worked. But wrestling's the only thing that says, here's what we're doing, and, and we're, we're deceiving you. And we all know that wrestling's deceiving us. So it's like the most honest sport, too. The Hearts continue to be heroes to so many Canadians, and they've embodied the contradictions of wrestling all along. I think the Hearts matter because they are our royalty. Like, this is our Kennedys. Like, these are the people that are internationally recognized as superstars from our country that have such a important role, like not in politics, obviously, but in in sports and pop culture. And also, Brett deserves credit. You know, I don't think wrestlers ever get the credit they deserve for how important they are. Like, Brett is an ambassador for this country in a way that very few others are. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Omar Mualam, David Shoemaker, CBC News, and the documentary teams behind Wrestling with Shadows and The Life and Death of Owen Hart. Both are excellent, and you should go check them out. And if you liked this episode, make sure you watch Damian Abraham's TV show, The Wrestlers, which you can stream on Crave. He goes around the world exploring wrestling in different cultures, and I promise you're going to love it. This is actually the last episode in our Dynasty series. We really hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back in six weeks with a brand new season of Commons. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can email me, Archie, at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand.